California has the highest percentage of unsheltered homeless, 70%, the highest in the whole country. We are exasperating the, the problem in a sense, like we're not doing anything about it. The people in San Francisco are saying we had enough. We're feeling not safe walking in our own neighborhood. Our children are worried about stepping on needles and children are exposed to open-air drug scenes every day on their way to school. That's not normal. We're spending a lot of money on this and it's questionable where the money goes. If a homeless is ready to receive treatment, the question is, are we ready? And right now, we are not ready. The system is failing them. My guest today is Jalu Strider, Director of Partnerships at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Her 2022 documentary, Homelessness in California, offers a variety of insights on the causes of homelessness, and it has reached almost half a million views. You know, we just have one program and another program in you know, a build upon each other. People don't think about the end game. Why is California's homeless approach financially unsustainable? And is it true that California can only manage the homeless crisis instead of ending it? Let's find out in today's episode. I'm Siamai Korami. Welcome to California Insider. Thank you for having me. We want to talk to you about homelessness. You've done a lot of, you've done a documentary and you've studied this. A problem we have in California is that we're spending a lot of money and efforts on homelessness. But at the same time, the number of homeless people is going up. Can you tell us what's going on? Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I think we're not spending our money wisely. Uh, there are a lot of uh, disjointed programs out there. Um, but at the end of the day, we don't have enough shelters. We don't have enough treatment. We don't have enough housing. And on top of that, we also don't have enough accountability. And how did we end up here? Can you explain to us? Yeah, so um, in terms of the lack of shelters, um, you, can, you can really look at the data uh, between 2004 and today, the unsheltered population really exploded in California. Um, so why did that happen suddenly? Uh, so like, let's take San Francisco, for example. Right? San Francisco in 2004, uh, Gavin Newsom at the time, he was the San Francisco mayor, and he adopted a 10-year plan uh, which uh, uh, called for elimination of emergency shelters. So at the time, his plan was let's build, a, uh, so let's build a lot of housing, let's build a lot of permanent supportive housing so people don't have to go to shelters and we can get rid of all the emergency shelters. So between 2004 and 2014, that all 10 years, if you look at the data, the, the shelter capacity froze. Okay? So we didn't build any more shelters? No shelter, no new shelters were built. And all the um, attention and all the financial resources were poured into building housing, building permanent supportive housing. And, and for 10 years, how many do they, did they build? They, they built 2,699 units. In San Francisco. In San Francisco. Okay. Um, uh, but what they didn't consider is the homeless population kept increasing, right? And then so they didn't build enough permanent supportive housing to house the increasing population who are homeless, and then they stopped building shelters. So now, where do the homeless go? They go on the street, okay? So if you look at the unsheltered homeless in San Francisco uh, between 2004 and today, it doubled the unsheltered homeless. What's the number of population in San Francisco right now? Uh, the 
uh, homeless population yeah. is about 8,000, and that's based on the 2020 data. I haven't looked at the 2022 data yet. Some people have told us that the shelters are not full mm -hmm. and people are not using them. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that? Um, no, um, I would say no. So if you look at the data, um, how many shelters do we have in California? If you add beds in emergency shelter, safe havens, and transitional housing, if you add beds all together, okay, you have about 50,000 beds. Okay, so it's actually 40, 47,000 beds. But you have 160,000 homeless. So it's one bed for every three homeless. So, um, you know, most of the time you actually have a, a shortage of housing. A short, sh sorry, most of the time you have a shortage of shelters. And so in Santa Clara County, for example, that's where I'm from, um, you have one bed for every five homeless. Wow. In Alameda County, where Oakland and Berkeley's uh, are, that's one to four, one bed for every four homeless. So if you just look at the data, there's a huge shortage of shelters. And I don't know um, upon what evidence people say, like the shelters are empty. I do hear, however, on the other hand, I do hear some people say, Shelters are uh, crowded, uh, shelters are not safe, uh, there are drug, drug dealing and drug using in shelters. That's a different situation. I think those are things we can improve for shelters. Uh, but just say shelters are empty, I, I don't see evidence for that. Mm. How does California compare to the rest of the states? To the re rest of the country. The rest know, of the um, country, other yeah. states. So if you look at uh, there are de definitely several differences between California and other states in terms of homelessness. For one, uh, California has the highest unsheltered population uh, among the whole pop uh, homeless population. So, so you'll see them more in the street and camping. Yeah, and yes. So California has the highest percentage of unsheltered homeless, 70 percent the highest wow. uh, yeah, in the whole country. And secondly, um, compared to many other states, California has a very high percent of male homeless and a very high uh, percent of uh, homeless population who are not with a family. So that's about 80, 85% of Californians' homeless population are not with a family. They're individual adults. Is there a reason for this? Um, I don't know. I think there, I mean, more research should like look into why we, we have more male uh, adult individuals who are homeless. Um, I, I actually have asked uh, some professors on my, on my documentary about this and then they said, uh, um, they, they, first of all, they don't know that they were making a speculation and probably it's like it's easier to access drugs in San Francisco. Um, you know, like that's more attractive to some um, individuals who are addicted to drugs and if they want to continue to use drugs and being homeless, that's a little easier for them to be. That's where it's a little easier for them. So how much of this homeless issue we have is connected to drug addiction? What percentage of it? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So how the question is uh, what percentage of the homeless population in California? have uh, mental illness and or drug addiction, right? Um, so actually there were two camps um, to answer that question. There are the one camp, mainly uh, some academics in California, some government folks, they would say it's a small percent, okay? They would cite government data. So the government data says the following, about 25% of all homeless in California have mental, have mental illness, severe mental illness and 
30% of all homeless individuals in California have severe drug addiction. Okay, so that's the government data. Um, and on the other camp, in the other camp, people say, no, 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 like the prevalence um, of those problems is extremely high in uh, unsheltered homeless population. So which camp is right, right? Um, and I, I tend to cite with the, the latter group uh, because I think the former group, they, they cite the government data. They're not technically incorrect, but it, it's a little bit misleading because you have to look at how the data are co collected. Okay, so how the data are collected, they're based on self-reports. So suppose I, I walk up to so you. So I have to go, so the homeless person needs to say, I have a mental exactly. illness or I have a drug Exactly. Problem. So I walk up to you, I say, hey, do you have a mental illness? And I have to admit, yes, I do. Or yeah. So and most people that do have a mental illness, they probably don't want to say they, they yeah, have. Yeah, they may feel ashamed <laughs> to acknowledge, or some of them may just not know they have a medical condition. Um, but that's not it. Say you acknowledge you have a mental illness, you're homeless. Um, and then I will ask a follow-up question. I say, is this mental illness severe? Uh, has this lasted a long time? And if you say no, even if you had said yes to the first question, if you say no to the second question, you will not be counted in that 25% because they, the 25% is for severe mental illness. So you have to be kind of a psychologist of yourself and diagnose yourself with yeah. how severe your situation is. Yeah, exactly. And then the data is collected like that. Yeah. But do the people that believe that were in that camp, did they know how the data is collected? I, I believe they do. Um, but unfortunately, when, when those data are cited loosely in news media or on newspapers, people conveniently drop the word severe then it now it becomes 25% of the homeless individuals have mental illness. There's a huge difference between whether you have the word severe and not having it. Because the survey was designed to highlight the severe, the severe part, right? So yeah, so that's like misleading. And also even suppose we say, okay, that data are 100% accurate, okay? 25% of all homeless have severe mental illness, okay? So even if that's correct, look at what's the prevalence of severe mental illness among the general population, 5%. Wow. So right there you have a five time difference. And wow. Yeah. And you mentioned the shelters versus uh, some, somewhere in San Francisco, they decided to go from shelters to, to, to housing. Yeah. Uh, why do you think that happened and what's the impact has been? They haven't built any shelters. So this housing first model where you invest in housing, what's been the impact of that? Yeah, um, I think so what happened is when, when you pour all the resources into building permanent supportive housing, um, you are actually um, overlooking or neglecting other options, um, such as non-congregate shelters or safe havens or you know other options. So there's like an opportunity cost of building permanent supportive housing. So you know this. We all know based on the LA City Controller's report, it costs like 600,000 to build one permanent one supportive studio, housing. One studio, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. They have different sizes, okay. studio, one bedroom, two bedroom, but mostly just a, a one apartment unit costs between 500 to $700,000 per unit. So you can house one person or two people, or maybe one family. Um, so what is the opportunity cost of doing that? 
well, as you are living for the same amount of money, you could have saved so many more. You could have moved so many more unsheltered homeless under a roof, at least, to keep them warm at night, to keep them from the harm and the harshness of unsheltered life outside. So I think that's the opportunity cost that people oftentimes are not thinking about. So how about. much is the cost of a shelter? Uh, yeah. So um, there are different options. Um, so the Bay Area Council Economic Institute, uh, they released a report last year. They compared that you can look, look, look this up online. They compare different costs of shelters. So going from the cheapest um, cabin, cabin community is 10,000 per bed. Okay. And then congregate shelters, 40,000 per bed. So to build it one time, and then there's yeah. an ongoing cost, the, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you have um, something called non-congregate shelters, uh, which are really nice, actually. Uh, they cost between 100 to 150,000 per unit. And then th those are, I think, the future of the shelter system, because very different from the congregate shelters. The congregate shelter is like you have a space and you have many beds. Mm -hmm. It's kind of overcrowded. But non-congregate shelters, it's a little more expensive, but you have your own room. And sometimes you even have a shower inside, sometimes no. But uh, you share bathrooms, you share kitchen on site. And then they also provide you with um, support, like you know, if you need a job training or- It's like um, a campus thing. Exactly, yeah. So I actually visited this place called Life Moves in Mountain View. Um, they are a non-profit non organization that operate uh, shelter systems in the Bay Area. They have one site in Mountain View, and that's the one that I visited, I talked with the director, um, Brian Greenberg. Uh, he's, he has a PhD in, uh, I think, psychology. He's like a great person. Like, you know, the, the site is well organized, super clean. I used their bathroom. It's cleaner than the bathroom you can see in the playground. <laughs> um, and the people there are content. And then, you know, they, they actually, during the day, many of them go to work. Um, so they have a key to their room, so you know they have safety, um, and then they have a place to store their stuff. So I feel that's the future. It's much cheaper than permanent supportive housing. So mm. you're mentioning shelters. Uh, for each apartment unit that we're building, um, how many shelter beds would we get? Yeah, so depending on what kind of shelter you're talking about, um, so we know permanent supportive housing costs about 600000 right? Um, so, but if you're looking at a non-congregate shelter, which you, you have a key to your own room, you have privacy, that's 100,000. So right there, it's a six-time difference. So you can put six people under a roof versus putting one. Yeah, and you have privacy. This is not congregate shelter. Congregate shelter will be even cheaper. Now, do you think the policies are going to shift? Into that? Yeah. I think there are some shifts happening right now. Uh, especially during the pandemic, as you can see, uh, there's the uh, 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 what's it called uh, project room key, project home key. So those are projects that convert the unused motels into shelters, into non-congregate shelters. So I think that's sort of like the beginning of people realizing permanent supportive housings is too expensive, and we need some other ways to house people. Uh, however, there is still, 
you know, the, the housing com the people, the camp who believe permanent supportive housing is the only way. And you cannot do anything unless you put a people, put a person in a permanent apartment. So you still have very, very strong belief in that. And that camp is going to resist. Some people have told us that there's special interest in this homeless space. Yeah. And they've turned it into a business. And uh, some maybe just they operate in it, and this is what it is. You know, they build housing, and mm -hmm. this is like another project for them. And and uh, it's it's sad to see that some people are making a living from mm -hmm. in the process of potentially helping the homeless, but they're really taking a lot of effort to build this housing while we could do other things with this money. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's um. So I've talked with a lot of nonprofit leaders in this space. And I think for most of them, I cannot speak for every one of them, but I think for most of them, their heart is in the right place, that they do sincerely want to help the homeless. Um, and and I, I, I do think this, uh, for a lot of them, they spend their whole life, decades of their career in, in this industry, trying to build housing for low-income families, for, for homeless individuals. Um, so for them, I feel if I were in their position, you know, I feel very strongly about my career. I feel very strongly about what I do, that I contribute to relieving people's pain. And perhaps I don't want to see that going, right? I don't want to see that uh, the industry being replaced by um, some a other. New way. Uh, yeah. So um, I, I don't know whether it's a, like a special interest. Perhaps there is. Um, but I don't know. But maybe getting stuck in the way you know how to do and not thinking yeah. outside of the box. Yeah, yeah, definitely I do, I do feel, you know, if, if you have done something one way for, for, so for 40 years, it's very difficult for you to see, hey, maybe there are some cost-effective ways out there. Now, you got into this about a year and a half ago, right? How, how long ago Last did you year. Last yeah, year. Yeah. And so what did you think before? of what's going on with the homeless and what do you think now? Yeah, so um, I, I started working on this um, because we, we realized homelessness is getting worse in California. In the Bay Area, in San Francisco, you know, where I go to very often. Before I started this project, I was like, I don't really know. Like, perhaps homeless people, why are they homeless? Um, they don't have housing, right? They're poor. Maybe they, they have some problems that we need to help them. Um, that's, that's basically my presumption that they're poor um, and that they don't have a place to go. Um, but now, I, after this project where, in which I interviewed 33 stakeholders, including policymakers, nonprofit leaders, academics, and homeless individuals themselves, uh, some of them are were and are addicted to drugs. So I, now I start to gain a, a, a more diverse more complete perspective that I realize um, people fall into homelessness for all sorts of reasons. Some of them for economic reasons and some others for non-economic reasons, such as mental illness, drug addiction, or childhood trauma. Um, so it's really misleading to use one word, homeless, to describe all of them. Because the word homeless is saying they lack a home. And then naturally, the solution would be to provide a home. But that's like a one-size-fits-all solution, right? 
And I feel like that's like you to group all the homeless people together and just call them homeless. It's like you ignore the differences between patients with brain tumor, heart disease, lung cancer, and group them group all them together. together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that's one thing I learned from doing this doing this project. Um, another thing that I learned is people really disagree um, on this subject. I, I didn't know there's there are so many different opinions, you know, and it's very politically sensitive. So people are not collaborating. I, I, or I, they're not listening to each other. It's kind of like you have your way or somebody else has their way. And yeah, they don't agree. I would say they don't agree on many things. For one, they don't agree what is a basic human right. Okay, so one side say uh, shelter is a basic human right. You need to keep per keep human beings in a safe, clean shelter overnight. On the other hand, you have people say, shelter is not housing. You cannot do anything unless you keep them in a permanent housing. But it's impossible financially, you know, how expensive yeah, it is. You build two here. houses for yeah. every 20 people that you can put in a shelter. Exactly, right? So right away, you have this people, two groups coming at each other. Another, another thing that's like really, people really disagree uh, with each other is whether and to what extent the homelessness problem is related to mental illness and drug addiction. People really disagree on that. Okay, They can start a street fight just over that topic. Um, so we already talked about it just now. Like Some people say it's, some people say, oh, it's a minority. You know, look at 25%, 30%. That's a minority. It's not all. Um, and then they also claim um, the uh, mental illness and drug addiction, they're the consequence, not the cause of homeless. You, you become homeless first. Then you get Then you adopt those habits, perhaps. I, I believe the, the, we cannot make a blanket statement. Now, having uh, studied all of this, you know, in the last year, yeah. you've been through it, and looking at California with all the innovation and potential that we have, is a very innovative, uh, high-tech state. What are your thoughts on what you see compared to what you know about the tech side of things and your? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's really sad. Um, for one thing, it's very sad that we don't have good data, right? Um, so for one thing, just now I told you how we, how we collect the data on mental illness and drug addiction, right? It's because we don't have good data linkage. So what is a data linkage? If we, if this homeless person is on the street, I look him up, well, her, look her up in the system, I can right away make connection between um, his or her status right now with their previous records in the public health records, the criminal justice record, or maybe even their education records, so that we can we know whether, for example, in terms of mental illness, whether the person has mental illness before or after homeless, right? Uh, and the whether this person uh, is from San Francisco or from California or maybe from another state. Or maybe they have family members who they can reunite with and then they can you know, help them ba get back on their feet. But right now, we don't have that kind of data linkage. And I mean, there are s some uh, in, in, the, in the LA, they have uh, uh, one project that was sort of linking data from different sources, but by and large, we don't have good data linkage. And I think, you know, 
as you just mentioned, we're in the epicenter of high tech. You know, why don't we have good data? I don't know. And what about the, the leaders you interviewed? You, you had talked to different people in different camps. What do you think it will take for these people to work together or at least talk to each other and try to reconcile what they think is right? Um, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of times there are different interests that uh, political leaders, they have to take into account, right? So they need to, they have constituencies who may not want them to build new housing in the neighborhood because that's going to jack up the density of a neighborhood and that's going to reduce the, the housing price of that neighborhood. So that's, you know, right away you have one group. And then you have groups that's like homelessness advocates who say, hey, let's build more housing, let's build more shelters. So right away you have political leaders who are like, I don't know, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to uh, upset either groups. So I think they're sort of like in this stalemate, just instead of doing anything, they just do nothing. Or sometimes just throw, at, throw money at the problems. And then we, we see how much money has been spent. Uh, and so far, w I, I think the situation in general is getting worse. Um, and also, I think the political leaders in general, they're not asking for accountability, which is really sad in places like San Francisco and LA. You know, you have increasing crime, uh, you know, you, you have uh, open, open air drug markets. And I think those things really need uh, good leadership to correct. So what kind of accountability would they need to have? Yeah, for one thing, you know, I, I, I don't want to criminali criminalize drug users. I think for drug users, they really need to receive treatment. Okay, so that's one thing we can do. Um, but on the other hand, I think drug dealers are different, especially the repeat offenders, right? So, um, uh, you know, w right now you, you read that San Francisco has a new DA and her priority is to um, ask accountability uh, uh, upon those who have um, uh, repeat offend, um, how do you say this, who are repeat offenders. So, um, you know, people who have been arrested for dealing drugs, but then released on the same day. Why do we release them? You know, but then they just go back on the streets and then deal drug again and we arrest them and then release again. I think that's a poor use of taxpayers' money. And also, it's not good for public safety. So we are exasperating the, the problem, in a sense. Like, we're not doing anything about it. Yes, yeah. I, I think right now, San Francisco has this uh, recall, had this recall election. Mm -hmm. um, they recalled their former district attorney, Chester Boudin, and now have a new DA. I think that's a way the people in San Francisco are saying, we had enough. We're feeling not safe walking in our own neighborhood. Our children are worried about stepping on needles. And children are exposed to open-air drug scenes every day on their way to school. That's not normal. But I think it's very sad that normal citizens like myself are told that is normal. It's OK to have homeless on the street. It's OK to have encampments. They are just normal human beings. Why can't we just let them sleep on the street? It, what's the big deal, right? So when you're asked that question, what's the big deal? I don't know. Maybe, it's no, maybe it is normal, right? Then you sort of start to normalize this, this, all this craziness. So you think this average 
So the camps that are in, in different sides of this homeless situation, the average residents of, of big cities in California, they're kind of outside of this camp and yeah. they are they're essentially the victims of they are aside yes. the homeless people they're also the victims of this yes yeah if you look at data um, th there have been surveys collected upon uh, you know San Francisco and LA residents there's one collected uh, I think it was either this year or last year uh, asking normal residents in San Francisco and LA how how do you feel the crime have changed and then 70% of them said crime has increased okay so that's just, you know, they're honest. They are not politicians. They, are, they don't have any interest in, 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 this, in this industry, but they care about the safety. They care about the health of their children, of their family. Um, and, and so I think they're telling the truth that they feel crime has increased. So is this fixable? Can we have a solution for this based on your interviews? Yeah. Uh, I think there are a lot of things that we can do. There are a lot of low-hanging fruit, I would say. Uh, for one, as I already said, we need more shelters right away, um, and we need to make them. We need to make them good shelters. We can't just. S some people say, "Oh, there are drug dealers inside the shelters. Get rid of them." Those, that's like you know. That's a, to me. That's a low-hanging fruit, right? Uh, if you some people say, "Oh, shelters don't allow pets." Get rid of the rules, get rid of unreasonable rules. Set up shelters, have good shelters that people are willing to go, um, and uh, have more treatments. So I don't know whether you know, but you know, for homeless, uh, for homeless individuals who have mental illness and or drug addiction, it's very, very difficult for them to access treatment. So in Santa Clara County, for example, we have millions and millions of people. How many detox beds do we have? So if you want to get rid of your addiction, yeah, it's yeah. We have we have ten detox beds for men. Wow. Ten detox beds for a woman. I mean, I'm talking about if you are on Medicare, okay? If you have a private insurance, sure you can. But the chances of yeah. you having a private insurance being homeless is very no. Yeah, low. most of the homeless ha are on Medicare, which is which is Medicaid for California. So they're on Medicare, and then they have this template. 10 detox beds for men, 10 detox beds for women, and then some re residential treatment for them. So it's very, very, very limited. And there is no, so I would really ask for treatment on demand. If, they, if a homeless is ready to receive treatment, the question is, are we ready? And right now we are not ready. The system is failing them. Which is very hard for somebody that's addicted to drugs to come out and say, I'm ready to quit. Yep. And but yeah, and then if you make them wait, they might go back. They might change because there are so many triggers when they go back to the encampment. Other people are using, their neighbors are using. It's very tempting for them to just go back. So the next day they may not be ready when you say, I, I have a bed available for you. They may not be there for you anymore. Did you find out why we don't have enough beds for that? Because we were spending a lot of money on this. And it's questionable where the money goes. Yeah. But it's sad to hear that we don't have the beds for these people when they are actually making an effort to, to change, yeah. to get out of that. Right. I, I don't exactly know why we have so few places, so little treatment available. But I do know, based on my reading of um, a report issued by California State Auditor, which is a government agency, okay? So they released a report last year. They did an audit of homeless services in California. And then they found there were um, 
uh, I think was like 41 programs, uh, nine government agencies across California using $13 billion uh, over two years. Wow. Um, and then so they, you can read their report, and then they said California has a, a disjointed approach to deal, with to deal with homelessness. And then there are a lot of duplication, there's a lot of uh, siloness, like, you know, you are doing your program, I'm doing my program, I'm not talking to you, the programs are not coordinated. I mean, might be wasting a lot of resources in the, in the yeah, process. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so on the surface, we're spending a lot of money, but it, it's a good question where the money has gone to. Does it doesn't really reach the people that need it. Or exactly, right, um, yeah. So you've talked to about 33 people, experts in this space, right? Mm -hmm. Is there anybody working to end this? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I think in California, just like it's nobody's job to end homelessness. So a lot of people's job is to manage homelessness services, homelessness programs. Um, so you know, we just have one program and another program you know, build upon each other. Um, but people don't think about the end game. And I, I interviewed uh, Roseanne Haggerty, the CEO of Community Solutions, and she told me, we need to have an approach that's like how we ended smallpox. You don't just manage smallpox, right? You don't just, just sort of like provide services to manage smallpox. You want to be ahead of the game and end smallpox. And in this case, we want to be ahead of the curve and end homelessness, and that should be the end game. Do you have any other thoughts for our audience? I feel like homelessness is getting worse in California and people are really now getting to a point like, you know, enough is enough and we need to turn this around. So I, I feel we need to get out of ideologies. We need to get out of, um, you know, this is how we've done business for 20 years and that's how we're going to do it for the next 20 years. We need to look at out of the box solutions. If something works, let's do it. Let's try it. Uh, let's let's take all the low-hanging fruit. Let's build good shelters. Let's provide uh, treatment on demand. Let's have common sense and build you know a good data system so we can link all sorts of data and then use our eyes and use data, use evidence to really figure out how to end homelessness. Jialu Strider, Director of Partnerships at CEPR at Stanford. It was great to have you on California Insider. Thank you so much for having me.